Hi, this is Ben Watkins, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 87 for September 2015. Well, we're in for a special treat today because I had over a 60-minute interview with the creator of the Amazon original Hand of God, Ben Watkins. You're going to love it. Before that, I do want to mention um, there are several ways that you can watch this podcast. Of course, there are 86 previous episodes you can watch. You can find them at the podcast site at tvwriterpodcast.com or you can go to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Graham A. Jones. You can get all that info at the podcast site. Um, a special announcement as well, any of you who have kids, I want to invite you to check out my side project, which is at abc123songs.com. Your young kids are going to love the singing and dancing. You're going to meet my wife on that channel. Um, it's a brand new YouTube channel with lots of fun animation. Would love for you to check it out. But right now, on to my interview with Ben Watkins. Enjoy. Okay, I'm here with Ben Watkins, creator of the Amazon original Hand of God. How are you doing, Ben? I'm good. I'm good. Great to be here, Greg. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast, particularly because everybody is interested in Amazon, Netflix, these, these new, I don't want to, uh, do we call them networks, but, but new ways of, of distributing content that, uh, that have different rules. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And I mean, a year and a half ago, I was in the same you know place as everybody else. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what is Amazon. Even even though Netflix already had House of Cards, you're still trying to figure out what is this new frontier that's going to be streaming. And even now that I have a show on Amazon, I'm, I'm literally like, when I tell people, oh, I have this new television show, but it, is it really a television show? I don't even know if I can call it that. So yeah, it's uh, I know I, I, I've been there. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's an exciting new frontier. I mean, when we think about television, there are very few developments that redefine the landscape. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about black and white to color, you think about standard definition to high definition, you, you think about sort of reality TV breaking. Sure. This is, I think it's on that, this is on that level. Yeah, and I would probably include, um, you know, pay cable mm -hmm. um, that sort of started uh, a trend towards the higher end, more adult material, being able to uh, make it and, and under the category of television. And that even bled into basic cable, which I think, um, you know, some of the basic cable channels that technically anyone can tune into, but they sort of, you know, trended towards a little bit edgier or more adult content and I think that was a major change in in television as well and this is is definitely a new one um, because you've got you know people that are streaming it's taking advantage of this new way of consuming television which is binging and that is something that me growing up that's not something that I was into and and then over time your technology catches up to your lifestyle, which is incredibly busy, and all of a sudden shows that you may have never watched, now you can watch because when you get that window, instead of only having one episode available to you, you have the entire season. So I think it's changing a lot of things. Um, and the one thing that's, that's interesting to me that is similar to the way I think cable changed some things is expanding the amount of outlets and putting you know some of these new outlets in a position where they are willing to take chances they uh, almost have to take chances in order to make a name for themselves and that is fun i think for audiences because then you're going to get different types of shows out there uh, that if the options were more limited you probably would never get to see mm -hmm. and uh, and it's also attracting feature film talent, which is one of the things that I think is, is incredibly fascinating. I mean, I mean, we were speaking before we started here about House of Cards, mm -hmm. and, and I, I think it's fascinating how you've got David Fincher coming in um, and, and bringing a, a very elevated kind of storytelling visually. Yeah. Um, you've got, because of the different development process, you can take your time. You're not in this relentless um, TV episodic right. schedule, yeah. um, and uh, and because of that, you can put a lot more into the writing. You're attracting the the, the feature film level actors. I mean, it's incredibly incredibly exciting. Yeah, I think there's so many circumstances coming into play right now that are making television uh, a, a new playground for 
all these storytellers. Um, one is I think there's a contraction in terms of the variety of stories and features. Mm -hmm. And when you have storytellers, as much as they love making movies and maybe, you know, and getting paid to do movies, their first love is probably just telling great stories. And so if you see a contraction of great stories, so now in the feature business, it just seems like, you know, 90% of it is tentpole, you know, big event type movies. And these really interesting layered stories have a harder time getting made and a harder time getting out there. So where, where is that going to happen now? And, and then so simultaneously, TV has expanded in terms of what are the options for storytellers. And so the terrain is changing, and I think what you're seeing is people who love to tell interesting stories finding a new place to do it. And it's great to see places like Amazon, Netflix, FX, HBO, Showtime, who are not only taking advantage of the fact that people want to tell these interesting stories, but also doing justice to them by really keeping the quality, the production values um, high quality. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to circle back to the present, but uh, I, I do want to jump back a little bit and talk about sort of how you got here. Yeah. Um, you, you grew up in California and, mm -hmm. uh, and got married pretty early, went to college here in <laughs> California. Tell, tell me about sort of, um, you, you had a long road getting here. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think if you, you talk to anyone in this business, uh, and especially once you get to a certain level of success, and you feel like an exception because it's really hard to break into this business, find some, some ground, get the foundation, and actually you know, not only be able to do your craft, but also make money at it. Uh, and so in that sense, I'm like everyone else. I have a story. Um, but I do think that it's a, a special story. You know, I, I definitely um, didn't have the, the road paved for me smoothly. You know, I grew up, um, you know, I was, I moved a lot. I call uh, Berkeley my hometown, but I've literally moved like 15 times between the time I was born and the time I graduated high school. So I never went to the same school for more than two years my entire um, life. And I rarely lived in the same house for more than two years. I think maybe only once. So um, it was a very, uh, I wouldn't say, yeah, it was somewhat tumultuous. It was a tumultuous upbringing. Uh, but there are some advantages to that uh, in terms of learning to adapt, uh, learning to uh, observe other people, being exposed to all of these different types of um, environments. And, you know, my mother was uh, white, grew up upper middle class, and my father was black, grew up incredibly poor. And although they broke up before uh, I was even able to remember, I had both of them in my lives. And so I got two pieces that way. And uh, because I didn't grow up with a silver spoon, I got to see a lot of different, you know, shades of, you know, what is the American experience. And, um, you know, I, one of the perfect examples is uh, at one point I went from living in the, you know, gritty inner city in Oakland, California. And, you know, a month later, I'm living in a gated community in a suburb of Chicago wow. um, just because of the way we moved. And, and you think about that. and yeah, sure, it's, it's great to have some consistency, but that's also great to get sort of exposed to that sort of range of, of life experience. Um, so given that I had a somewhat tumultuous upbringing, um, dealing with some of the issues that come with that, like when you're poor, um, and even to the point of being homeless at one point, uh, you know, it's, it's very, um, for a lot of people, surprising that I've gotten to where I am. Um, and there were obviously a lot of times where it could have gone one way or the other. But I feel like even when uh, times weren't great, the one thing that I always got from my parents, especially my mother, was that you know not only was I loved, but that I was special and I had something to offer. And so even when times were tough, I think I still had this, uh, I still had this sense that there was something out there. I was able to maintain that something out there and, and that I might have an ability to, uh, to affect what my future, uh, have an effect on what my future was going to be. And, and that is something, you know, when I look at the difference between me and a lot of the guys I grew up with that ended up not getting the same breaks, I think that um, concept of a better future that I was actually able to believe in was one of the big big factors. And so let's let's talk about that a bit. So so when you were in your early early twenties, were you already dreaming of 
creating the show? Were, were you just dreaming of Hollywood? Mm -hmm. I, I know that you did a lot of acting over the years. Right. Well, you know, I went to, um, you know, I was one of those kids that um, I didn't actually, there was a time where I didn't think college was even going to be a possibility. Mm -hmm. And then when I ended up, you know, kind of turning over a new leaf midway through high school and the grades started getting better and uh, I started to make college a real possibility. Uh, that changed my perception a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I was, by the time I went to college and I actually ended up getting into UC Berkeley, mm -hmm. um, I was really starting to lean towards I, I should do something practical. And I got into college and I, you know, started a major that, you know, mass communications where I was thinking, you know, at the very least, uh, the riskiest thing I will do with that is journalism. Hmm. And then I took a theater class <laughs> and that just blew up everything. Yeah. Um, not only did I, it, it basically proved to me what I wanted to do. I mean, I, I got in there and I knew I was home, like storytelling. And at that point I was focused on acting, but really it was a love of storytelling. And so I knew that's what I wanted to do. That's the thing that felt right to me. Mm -hmm. And it also showed me that there were careers in that field, whether it was theater, film, TV, you could actually pursue a career and, and, and make a, you know, a living doing this uh, storytelling thing. Mm -hmm. So I focused on acting, uh, finished college, um, only because I had started and I was like, okay, well, I might as well finish. But I already knew at that point that I wanted to pursue acting. Mm -hmm. And I, I started doing that right out of, out of um, college. And I started actually working in a touring theater group that used to stage plays daily at different high schools all over Northern California and even into Central California. Oh, so neat. it was basically a road show. Yeah. And it was an amazing training ground because you have to perform every day, but you also have to do all the technical stuff. And you've got to travel and you've got to deal with the logistics and you've got to manage people. And so that was, that was a great training ground. And while I was there, um, a director um, who I had met um, and was really, you know, one of my mentors said he knew a casting director in, uh, in New York. And he said, you know, I'll put in the good word for you. Mm -hmm. So he makes this connection. And, and by the way, and we, we can talk more about this later, but by the way, I'm already married with a kid mm -hmm. by the time I leave uh, college. Wow. So I've got, I've got a wife and a son, a young son. And he says, oh, you know, he makes this connection. I, I, I contact the casting director and she says, you know, uh, you know, Gilbert speaks very highly of you, and if you're ever in New York, drop by, and you know, I'll, I'll bring you in for a general audition. Mm. So I go back, I tell my wife, and I'm just thrilled. Uh, uh, I, 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 we can, I can get this general audition with a casting director in New York, and my wife and I are so naive. We actually think a general audition is like they're generally interested in casting me. Not <laughs> now for people who don't know, basically yeah. a journal audition is like, oh, it's a get to know you thing. Yeah. It, there's nothing involved at all. There's no parts on the table. It's just like, oh, there's an actor that we've heard good things about yeah. and let's just get a feel for him. Yeah. So I, I basically uh, talked to my wife and we buy a ticket for me to go to New York oh, the wow. next day. And I get to New York and the casting director is shocked and she's like, wait a minute, you came all this way <laughs> to do a general audition? And I'm sitting there like, yeah, why not? Uh -huh. um, and, uh, you know, but sometimes, you know, ignorance is your best friend. I do the general audition. She loves it. She actually tells me to wait in the room. She mm. goes up, talks to the executive producer, and it turns out she's a casting director for a soap opera called One Life to Live. Oh, wow. And they give me a part on the show that day no that they were never even thinking of me for um they changed the part a little bit uh and it, it wasn't a big part but it was a start wow and it's one of those situations where you know me not knowing any better but being driven and my wife supporting that vision yeah. gets me to new york and i make the most of the opportunity the casting director not only got me on the show but she also personally called agents and said, you need to sign this guy. Wow. And that was the beginning of my career into, you know, transition from doing this touring theater into doing Hollywood. I got an agent in New York that led to an agent and manager in Los Angeles. And a few months later, I'm making the move. Wow. And you did quite a few shows over the years. Uh, my wife was impressed at Young and the Restless <laughs> um, and quite yeah. a few other ones. Um, yeah. And so as you're doing the acting, you're doing pretty well. At what point did you think, wow, I'd like to actually write this stuff? I think the, um, the beginning of that notion started in college. Uh, my 
my mentor, uh, I had a, a number of mentors. Uh, Margaret Wilkerson was this sort of groundbreaking um, black theater professor. Mm -hmm. um, and she had started a program there called Black Theater Workshop. So she was still sort of the supervisor for that. But um, a, another guy by the name of Gilbert McCauley came in um, and was running it when I was actually in the, in the college. And he is still one of my most trusted mentors to this day. And one of the projects that he made us do was um, where we were to write the stories that we were going to perform for one of the um, plays that we did. Mm -hmm. And in that process, and I had to do that, I had to study characters, I had to meet real people and turn those into um, some sort of narrative. And uh, that process was so rewarding for me and was really for me what sort of crystallized this idea that there it's all part of the storytelling process. Some of us focus on acting, some of us on filmmaking, some of us on writing, some of us do all of it, but we are all actually storytelling. And I knew at some point I wanted to transition into writing. I loved that process and I loved what the outcome was. And even when I was starting this acting career and even once I got my first like big break when I got a regular part on The Young and the Restless, I always had this idea that once I got really established as an actor, I would start doing writing. Um, and uh, ironically, when things really stalled for me as an actor, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I started focusing on the writing, and that really turned into be the, the the avenue that I ended up, you know, really finding success with. Now, I, I should mention you you had a film at Sundance in two thousand and two, uh, which you wrote, directed, co-directed, and acted. Yeah. In in mm -hmm. was that part of that? Um, transition or it was it was um, it was <laughs> it was crazy so the deal is um, again being naive my wife and I uh, I go to New York I get an agent I get an agent and manager in LA and they say you got to come to LA well at this point I have another kid on the way mm. so I go back to the Bay Area and my and I talk to my wife about you know going to LA and we know it's crazy right now um, there's no promises and we already have one kid we have another one on the way and uh, so we make a deal. When our second kid is one year old, we will move to LA. And you know, this is not easy to ask of a new mother mm. with no promises um, that anything's ever gonna work out. But my wife says, okay, you know, this is your dream and I love you, so let's give it a shot. Mm. The only thing I ask of you is that if it doesn't work out in a year, we move back. And that was us being naive because we really thought you could come to L.A. and if you work your ass off, a year's fine. You'll know. <laughs> yeah. And so the first year, I actually do really well. And, it, it, you know, it's enough to say, like, let's extend it another year. I'm not a huge star, which was what the goal was. Like, mm -hmm. not, you know, we want to be, like, financially, like, really well off in a year. I don't know what we were thinking. <laughs> but it was enough to say, you know what, this is working. Let's give it another go. And the second year was absolutely terrible. Like, I'm not booking any jobs. Um, I'm getting into these auditions, and I, I'm getting into these, these auditions where I get to the point of a screen test, which uh -huh. is basically for series regulars, you, you go in and you sign the contract, and if you get the part, you're, you're set. Yeah. And to us, when that didn't work out, it was, I didn't get the job. And everyone else is like, that's so great, you're getting close. And I'm yeah. like, no, I have two kids and a wife. And, yeah. You know, this is it. So about halfway through that year, we, you know, decide we're going to go back to Northern California. Wow. And my wife, God bless her, says, you know, you've been talking about this idea of a short film that you want to make. And since we're going back to the, you know, Bay Area, why don't you do that short film? Because it's going to take a few months for us to sort of get all the pieces in place for us to move back. And in mm -hmm. the meantime, you could do this short film and have something to remember L.A. by. Wow. That short film turned into a project called Quest to Ref. Yeah. And it won a ton of festivals. It got into Sundance. And um, it got me the job on Young and the Restless because there was a casting director there who really liked me and an executive producer there who really liked me. But there's a role there, like, he's too young for it. And so I had already been in for the role and not gotten it. Mm. Then she gets this tape of Quest to Ref. She goes in, doesn't tell me. And she shows it to the executive producer, and she's like, I know you said he's too young, but look at this. Wow. Before you say no again. And the executive producer said, you know what? We're going to change the role for him. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. So that the next awesome. thing you know, I'm on Young and the Restless. And, but, and also you got a feature development deal out of that, right? 
Well, that was the thing. Then right after that, I'm like, okay, I'm doing Young and the Restless. But as much as that got me that job on, on a, as an actor, it was also just really resonating with people on the writing filmmaking side. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kept getting approached about what am I doing with it? What can I do with it? And so uh, the guy that co-directed with me, Guy Guillet, um, fantastic director. The, the film never would have been what it was if he hadn't gotten involved. Mm -hmm. he, um, he and I sat down and we adapted it into a feature screenplay and that actually sold. Wow. Yeah, and it was a it was a little bit later, but that was the first big like you know success story on the writing side, and at that point I was already starting to feel this you know a, attraction to the writing side. It was mm -hmm. like a magnet. Like I'd be going to work as an actor, and I'm doing these scenes, and and I'm doing what I said I had set out to do, and yet I keep thinking about oh these stories I want to actually write. Yeah. And so. Um, I eventually just decided to, to put all my eggs in the writing basket. Wow, so, so you have this, this feature screenplay, and, and so from that point, uh, your, was Burn Notice your first staff gig, or did you have a staff gig before Burn that? Burn Notice was my first staff gig, and it's interesting because when you get into this business, and the first thing you have to do is just start writing. Yeah. You have to start writing scripts. And you're telling these stories, you have to hone this craft. So you have to like keep what is special about you, which you think all of us have a way to tell stories and a way of seeing the world and no one's is the same. So that's what's special about you. You have to be, find a way to get that out onto the page, but you also have to hone the craft. You have to learn about act structure. You have to learn about character development. You have to learn about dialogue and, and making it natural and organic. And you have to practice that. Mm. But um, then you have to also be careful because uh, one of the things I did that was, again, just a product of me being naive was I just wrote the stories that were coming to me. Hmm. And there were a number of times where it, was, it conflicted with what the business says you should do. Hmm. So perfect example is I write a feature script that sells. And, and it gets good attention. Mm. And the, 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 the agents will tell you, okay, let's follow up with another feature. That's how you've established yourself. That'll make it easier for us to sell you. Mm. So, and, so imagine when I go in there and say, oh, you know what, I just wrote a pilot. I have no TV track record. Yeah. Uh, I just sold a feature. I don't even have a TV agent. I have a feature agent yeah. who's waiting for another feature script. And I give them a, a TV pilot. And that's back when people didn't just write TV pilots. That's when, absolutely. At that point, if you wanted to be in TV, you wrote what's called a spec. Yeah. And it's a, you know, a version of a television show that's actually on. Yeah. And you probably have two of those because you have to have more than one sample. Yeah. And instead, I come to them with the original pilot. And the, uh, you know, to, you know, again, the agents are like, well, okay, I'll see what I can do with this. <laughs> Uh, but he loved the script, so he did his job internally, got me a TV agent, and we took that out, and that didn't sell. Mm -hmm. But it, again, got me all this attention. And here's the reason I'm bringing that up is because there can be a lot of young writers out there who try to figure out what is the formula. Mm -hmm. And if I tell you that story and just say, I wrote a feature, my agents were pretty confident that I could you know, sell another feature, and instead I brought them a TV pilot, then it sounds like I made a mistake. Hmm. But if you just let that play out a little bit longer, that TV pilot got me a lot of attention, even though it didn't sell. And eventually it got me the job on burn notice. Hmm. So if I had followed the other route and maybe wrote a feature just because they said that was the next logical thing to do, but the story wasn't really made for a movie, hmm. it, so then maybe it wouldn't have been as good, it doesn't sell, and then I'm dead in the water. Yeah, or, or if you had written a bunch of specs, they or might I, not have gotten you the same meeting of burden notice. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So, so that, that, that spec pilot got me the staff job on burn notice. Great. And so, so tell me from then, I mean, you were on burn notice a few years. Right. And, and so was that kind of your film school for, for writing or, or tell me about that? Yeah. Um, so burn notice was sort of, uh, you know, a serendipitous for me. Um, first of all, you have a showrunner who's coming over from the feature world. So while he's smart and he's going to do everything he can to figure, you know, to learn the game that he's in right now, he's also coming from a place where, you know, the, some of the, the antiquated notions of how you, you run a TV, you know, a writer's room and how you do go about producing TV um, don't necessarily, he's not, he hasn't been, in, that hasn't been ingrained in him. 
So, for example, his his writer's room was incredibly egalitarian, and mm -hmm. that's something that you see that trend continuing today. But even now, there's a lot of like hierarchy to writers' rooms, mm -hmm. and so to be in a place where I'm a staff writer and I'm I'm you know in my 30s at that point, so I'm not like a young staff writer. I'm a yeah. staff writer who has something to offer, and instead of having to sort of observe all the hierarchical rules. I actually get to just pitch with everyone else, and in his eyes, best best idea wins. Wow! And that's a great thing. The other thing that we did on Burn Notice is you had a lot of input at every level of the episodes that you were doing, and not just your episode, but other episodes as well. But even early on, you could be a story editor, like you could be in your second year, and you're kind of driving the writers' room. You know, like in terms of saying, here's what you, you're coming in there and saying, here's what I think the episode is. And and you're up at the board and you're kind of driving the, the beats. I mean, the showrunner has last say, but he's letting you really take some some ownership over even the breaking of the story. Wow. And then um, once your story's broken and it's written, all the writers on Burnos would go to set and produce their episodes. All the writers. All the writers. And it, by the second and third season, even staff writers would go. Wow. And that's almost, that's kind of unheard of. Mm -hmm. But if you know that's what you want to do, then you're keeping that in mind when you hire your staff writers. Yeah. And you're, you're putting pieces in place so that um, if a staff writer goes, in this case, we went to Miami to produce. Mm -hmm. uh, if a staff writer goes there, the, the infrastructure that's in place, you know, has to be able to support that. Mm -hmm. Because there's something really great about having the person who wrote it be there. Yeah. Right. But if you don't have any experience, you know, you're going to need some safety nets. And, and so um, we did that. We knew that writers were going to be covering and they were going to have some influence. So we had to give them safety nets. And if you are a young writer and you get into TV that way, so now best idea wins. So if you really work your ass off and try to like be original, mm -hmm. then you're actually going to have a place where that's going to be nurtured. And, and then you're also going to get sort of a Ph.D. Mm. in how to make TV. Because yeah. you're going to be part of the breaking of it. Like, you're going to drive the breaking of the story. You're going to produce the, the episode on set. Then you're going to come back, and you're actually going to get first crack at the cut. Before it actually goes to the showrunner, you get to give a round of notes. Yeah. And that's another thing that doesn't, doesn't typically happen. But then, you know, if you're not experienced, you're going to get it. Mm -hmm. And so even if that first time through it's not great because you're not as familiar with the post process and how to give notes or even if you're given a note what would be a good solution to it but the second time through it's going to save everybody some time and it's going to get that episode closer to what everyone envisioned for it wow well good good on matt nix yeah, mean, yeah yeah seven I've... seasons you go from staff writer to executive producer yeah and i have talked to people today who yeah. I, even people who have just recently gotten shows so they're first time showrunners and uh, they're asking me about the post process. Yeah. And because they have gone up through the ranks and been on shows and still not been uh, where they've supervised the, the post production of one of their episodes. Wow. And on wow. Burn Notice, you were literally doing that within two or three years. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, he's, he's a filmmaker. I mean, really, mm -hmm. he's, he's approaching it with a, with a different kind of mentality than somebody who came up through television yeah yeah and he had to be smart about it because there were plenty of times where people would say that's not how we do it on tv mm -hmm. and sometimes they were right like you can't do everything the same yeah but other times they were not right and the only reason they were saying that's not how you do it on tv is because that's not what they were used to wow and so he had to pick and choose um you know what parts of it fit for what he needs this to be mm -hmm. and and he had to be really conscious of that so that is an incredible sounding experience, um, and uh, and we have to establish that that that's not necessarily the norm. No, um, I, I've heard of. All, I mean, a, a wide range. I mean, there's some shows like that. Warehouse 13, uh, I know, is a show where even the younger writers got to fly to mm -hmm. to set to um, and and be a part of that process. I know other shows where it's only the um, co-producer and executive producer kind of level that that you get that kind of involvement. Yeah. But, but tell me about, um, you started developing Hand of God at what point in, in Burn Notice? I started developing Hand of God, I sat down to write the script in between episodes six and seven. Mm -hmm. I had some discussions with my agency, um, of, when was this, in, during season six. So we're pretty sure there's gonna be a season seven, and, and if there is, it's going to be the last. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so 
no matter what, it's time to have some other things on the burner. Mm. And I had developed a couple of times already at that point and for pilots, for networks that, and the pilots didn't go. And so, um, you know, again, so what's the formula? How does the business work? Mm -hmm. Well, now you've moved up to co-EP and then EP on a, on a you know, really hit show. So your, you know, your resume is different, how people see you is different. And the, the best thing you can do is have some pitches that um, have, are, are a little bit similar to Burn Notice in terms of it could be an action drama, mm -hmm. it could be an action comedy, it could have some, some thriller elements or some suspense elements. Um, something that says, oh right, there, he's that, that sort of uh, makes hay out of that resume. Mm. And, but it has to be different enough to say, you know, it's not just a derivative or a carbon copy, right? Right, because that's been done. Mm. Okay, great, that would be the formula. And so my agents and I talked about it and they were like, come up with some pitches that fit that formula because that's going to be easy to sell. Yeah. And of course, I'm thinking, okay, great. I work on these pitches. And even as I'm working on these pitches, there's this idea that's been sort of kicking around in my mind for a while uh, that keeps coming to the forefront. Mm -hmm. So you go to, you, you work on a pitch and then you go to bed. And in the morning, I'm not thinking about the pitch. I'm thinking about this idea yeah. uh, about this crazy character who gets obsessed um, you know, it was really inspired by, by a fascination with zealotry and the idea keeps coming to me in the mornings. Mm. So finally, I literally go to my agent and say, look, I know you guys want to do these pitches, but I'm actually feeling a script, uh, an idea, and it has to be a script because there's no way I can pitch this. Uh -huh. There's no way I can walk into a room and, and pitch what the hand of God turned out to be. Wow. And again, my agents, and to their credit, especially uh, this Frank Jung, who I'd been with for years, um, he's, you know, it's like, oh, okay, script. But he's like, he, he literally said, I'll never forget. He said, I can see that look in your eyes. Yeah. And he, he had seen it before. I see that look in your eyes. If there's, and, and, and that's the look I like. If that's what you, you want to do, man, go for it. Yeah. Um, he had no idea. I had given him a little bit of an inkling of it and he knew it was crazy, but, uh, he had no idea what it was going to become. Yeah. So, uh, as soon as season six on burn notice ended, uh, I started working on this and it came out pretty quickly. I had been kicking around the different themes and ideas for a while, and uh, so once I sat down to write it, it came pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And then I put it right in the drawer because season seven of Burn Notice. Wow. And so during season seven of Burn Notice, it's sitting in a drawer. And I'm working on season seven, and it was really great to be able to put a, you know, a ribbon on a great experience. And towards the end of that, I handed the script over to a few of my um, writer friends who I really trust who know me and also will give me the, you know, their honest reactions to the material mm -hmm. and they loved it. Mm -hmm. And I knew I was onto something at that point because I'd given them other stuff before. And, uh, even if it got to a point where they loved it, it usually took a while. Right. And so now I knew I was onto something. I made a few revisions and I gave it to my agents as soon as season seven wrapped. And I had a full script and I said, this is crazy. Uh, it probably um, it isn't going to get made because uh -huh. even in this new landscape, this show is taking some risk and it's really ambitious in terms of the way it want, I want to tell the story. Mm -hmm. uh, but for sure, it'll be a great like calling card for me. Mm -hmm. And I definitely will never regret writing it because, you know, when you have something on your, uh, you know, you want to get off your chest. Mm -hmm. And so even if it doesn't sell, I'll be glad I got this off my chest. Yeah. Well, we'll sp uh, let's talk about that a little bit because it, it seems to be from the outside looking in. That it's a very theme-driven show, and so um, I mean, particularly you, you said you were fascinated about the idea of zealotry, about, mm -hmm. about uh, somebody with a singular purpose and what can, they right. can accomplish. Um, what fascinated you about that? I mean, tell tell me about some of the root of that. that well, where that came from. you know, I, I'm fascinated. You know, human nature just is is so interesting to me. And I feel like there are some parts of human nature that we really don't get into. And one of them is zealotry, because very few of us, uh, we kind of go through these lives. Um, our lives are pretty convenient. Like, even if we say we care about something, we really don't have to do too much. I mean, we can, you know, hit a button on the, uh, you know, on our computers and make a donation to a cause. Uh, at the very most, you might go to a meeting uh, or you might go to, I don't even, you know, know what, what I've done recently to support something that I actually pr pretend to feel strongly about. You know, do you go to a PTA meeting and say, oh, you don't want, you know, 
You don't want to change the way the you want to change the way the curriculum is being taught. That that might be the most you do. Do you actually change your life based on something you purport to believe in? Mm. And I'm not just talking about religion. I'm talking about politics. I'm talking about anything. So um, that fascinated me because there are these people sometimes who do get focused on something and do get obsessed with something and do make every decision in their lives based on that. And if you look at it throughout history, you know, those people get a certain amount of power and they can be polarizing. And so I was wondering, okay, there's two sides to this. There's the individual who's a zealot and that's fascinating to me. And then there's the other side of it, which is the reaction of society. And that is the reaction of us as, as other people. And the fact that looking at zealots throughout history, the way they're able to sort of garner support and when they get it, that support is so like um, committed to them. Mm. Uh, then on the other side, you have these people who vilify them. And mm. so and, and we have to kind of make a decision because it's really uncomfortable for us to see people who are obsessed like that. And so we either have to say, you know, they're doing the right thing and we're going to, you know, turn them into heroes or they're doing the wrong thing. And we're going to turn them into villains. And I'm, I kind of felt like I bet you there's some truth to both sides of it. Wow, that, that is fascinating. And, and we hear the stories of what they accomplished, but you don't often think about, well, what would have, the fallout have been in yeah. the families? What, what would the fallout have been? I mean, you think about some of the greatest figures have been assassinated. Yeah. Um, why? I mean, anyway, you think about somebody like John Lennon, when, when somebody is singular in their focus and yep. accomplishes a lot, it just, it sparks every kind of emotion. Can in you, uh, right. I mean, that, it's so funny because, you know, I think musicians, I think artists in general can, can become what I would consider zealots. So some people might say I'm using that term loosely, but I would say uh, uh, someone like John Lennon who commits himself to expressing certain ideas and feelings through music, through song, through lyrics, and you see the amount of passion that he ends up, you know, producing in the people that hear it, in the people that hear him. You know what I mean? And there's people who are going to be like, I love him. He is, you know, on an elevated level. They almost worship him. And then there are people who are hating him. And that's not, and that's not uncommon when you talk about these zealots. And you see fallout from that. There are consequences, good and bad. And, you know, John Brown in U.S. history, well, you know, he was, like, trying to abolish slavery. Hmm. He was ready to declare war against the United States and become, became, like, basically the, the, the first real domestic terrorist in the United States in the name of ending slavery. Wow. You can't argue with what his cause was. Yeah. But if you separated his cause for a second and said, well, you know, there were a lot of innocent people that died along the way. And had he actually been able to, you know, take over Harper's Ferry and get his hands on all those weapons, who knows what would have happened? Wow. Would you have supported that? Or would you have said, no, there might be another way to, like, you know, solve this problem? He, you know, obviously there was a civil war, so that might kind of answer that question. But it definitely puts us in a very uncomfortable position. Because if you support John Brown, then are you supporting innocent people dying in, in the name of his cause? And if you don't support John Brown, then are you supporting slavery? Mm. And, so, and so did you do a lot of research on zealotry as you were, as you were sort of ruminating over this idea? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, and, you know, the one thing that I found, and so I, I really tried to start to boil it down to just let me just get the characters. Mm. Let, me, let me just find out the characters, like, you know put them in, you know, find out who they were as people. Because when you start doing some of the more, like, uh, just, when you start doing the research that's going to be based on, like, what makes a zealot or what is zealotry definition-wise, it gets pretty boring. I mean, it's kind of, and, it, and it's also very subjective. Mm -hmm. But when you start to look at who becomes a zealot, who becomes singularly focused on something, whether it's John Coltrane or Charlie Parker or John Brown or, you know, I would even call Albert Einstein. Like, these are people who have very formative experiences and very strong feelings about something. Mm. So John Brown had these experiences early in life and he had religion and he had a really strong feeling about slavery. And he really felt like we can't be a country and have slavery. And all these people are saying slavery is wrong that's not enough. You actually have to actively try to end it. Otherwise, who are you as a person? And that's a hard place to be because we like 
life to be a little bit convenient and easy. Hmm. We just want to do just enough so we get a good night's sleep. There are other people, you know, who had a, a you know, people who had a really strong upbringing, I mean, really bad upbringing and all these really bad experiences. And so they started to um, find themselves through music. And then that became the way to express themselves. And that became their way of trying to change the world. And maybe it was a response to the fact that they were humiliated as kids or never understood as kids. And so they were so misunderstood that they had to find this other corner. And then that other corner, they became obsessed with it because it was their only solace. Maybe that's what it is. But eventually, they're out here doing this magical stuff. Hmm. And people are responding to it. And so I, did, I decided I want to focus on that part. I want to focus on what would be a formative experience and mm. then what would be a cause. Right. And, and, uh, and wow, a very, very powerful um, situation you created. Um, it, it, but tell me about incorporating religion into it. Were you afraid in the television market about bringing, bringing religion into this story? Yeah, absolutely. I was afraid. There's so many, there, there are things that, are basically taboo and you 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 ever you ever hear that saying like you go to a cocktail party two things you don't want to bring up politics and religion mm. and I think that that's basically true now you can do shows based on politics right but you can't do it you can't talk about it at a party because people look at you and you're literally saying what you really feel yeah about how the world should be how your state should be, how your city should be, how your country should be. And a lot of people don't want to do that. They don't want to engage at that level, right? And they don't want to show themselves that way. And the same thing with, with religion. So those are taboo topics. Now, you can do a political show because it's not you. But mm. you do a religious show, it's even more taboo. Mm. And so um, I knew even if there was going to be any little bit of uh, element of religion, that it was going to be controversial. And I was a little bit afraid of that. But at that point, when I decided to add that element to the story, because originally I was just going to have this guy go off his rails hmm. and, um, and see, you know, what happens, what's the fallout. Um, and I had already gotten really pretty far down that road when I decided to add the element of religion. I was already doing things that scared me, hmm. um, things that made me wonder how I feel. Where do I land on the, on the, you know, the spectrum of morality? Hmm. And what is revenge versus justice? And all these things that I was going to decide to address in this show, bring up in this show, and do it in a way that didn't give you the answer, that really gave fodder to both sides so the audience was going to be put in an uncomfortable situation. And when they draw a conclusion, they're also going to have to acknowledge that that conclusion is partially based on their own agenda. Hmm. That was scary to me. Yeah. So when I did the, the religion thing, and really I was like, look, if I don't put another explanation for what's happening to this judge, mm -hmm. if I don't have another explanation for it, it's just going to be there's a crazy guy. Right. And that can be entertaining, but it's not going to be as thought-provoking. Mm. It's going to make it easy for you. You're going to be like, oh, yeah, there's this crazy guy. I kind of, I, I, he's kind of every now and then doing something that I agree with, but mostly he's just crazy. And even it, when he does stuff I agree with, he's still crazy. But what if he's doing something you don't agree with, but he's inspired? Mm. Then you have a, a really interesting conversation to have. Very, very interesting. So let's, let's, let's now talk about, um, so you, you do have the script that you don't think it's going to sell. Certainly it's not a USA show. Right. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, and so um, tell me about how you shopped it around, when Amazon got on board, how that happened, uh, Ron Perlman as well. Uh, tell me about that, that part of it. This was, um, you know, when the script went out, again, I was thinking, hey, uh, this is probably going to be a tough sell. Uh, it'll be a great calling card and you know let me know well one of the first things that happened i got a call and they said you know script's great script is fantastic um have you ever thought about you know directors and i, I had not even a, a little bit and i started i went back i said i'll get back to you and i made up a list of directors and at the top of it was a guy by the name of mark forster because one of the things I was doing with this show was really pushing the boundaries of human behavior and emotion. Mm. And I needed someone who could ground it 
and remind us that these are people and there are elements that are relatable. And even when we push the boundaries, there has to be something that we can recognize. Mm. Uh, and I felt like Mark Forster's films had done that, in particular Monsters Ball and The Kite Runner. Um, but I felt like storytelling, the way he told stories, not only did that, it humanized no matter who you were in the movie, who all those characters, even people that you know, I really didn't want to like in the movies, I did see them as real people, real humans, real characters. Mm. And I felt like I needed someone with that sort of touch. I send that list back and I'm thinking, that's just an example, so you know, use that as sort of like a guideline. Yeah. And a couple of days later, I get this call, I'm going to be meeting with Mark Forster. Wow. And that's when I knew that, that um, things had changed. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and so I met with Mark Forster and it was just sort of, a, you know, everything was sort of magical the way all this started to take place because um, he had a producing partner by the name of Jillian Kugler. She read the script and she said, we're setting the meeting. She told him, I'm setting the meeting. There's a, you have to meet this guy, read the script in the meantime, which is, again, that's not their, yeah. the way they do things. That's not their MO, yeah. but she was already that convinced. Then the meeting's coming. He reads the script in the meantime. And I'm in the lobby. Uh, we're both at this agency, CAA. We're sitting in the lobby, you know, the nice, shiny, you know, fancy lobby at CAA. And nobody talks. You know, you're yeah. sitting in there and you're kind of like, I'm Hollywood. Are you Hollywood? Yeah, we're all Hollywood. Oh, yeah. And Mark Forster comes in and I'm sitting there. I'm trying to keep my cool. I'm like, oh, my God, that's, that's him. That's him. And I'm trying to figure out how am I going to pitch this show to yeah. him. Because I don't know that how he's felt about the script. I just know we're having the meeting and right now I need to convince him. I need to say something that's gonna make it happen. Yeah. So we're supposed to go up to the fifth floor and we're waiting to get taken up there. So eventually, you know, it's getting a little awkward. I think we both spotted each other. Eventually we introduce ourselves right before we get on the elevator. You, yeah. you must be Mark. Yes, and I'm Ben. And he's like, I love the script. <laughs> we get on the elevator and the door's closed and he says, you have to let me do this. Oh, wow. And imagine you're in my shoes. You're thinking, how am I going to convince this guy to do it? And he's telling me I have to let him do it? Like, this wow. is like some out-of-body experience. Wow. So by the time the door's open on the fifth floor, we're, we're fast friends and wow. we're in it. And we go into this meeting room for no reason because now we're in this meeting room, but we've already decided we're going to work together. So yeah. I, there's no reason to be there anymore. Two minutes in, an agent comes in. And they're like, um, you guys talking, and, and before they can open their mouths, Mark's saying, we're doing this, we're making this, we're making this, this TV show. And they're thrilled, and then they say, hey, what would you think about Ron Perlman being involved? Wow. And we both say, that would be amazing, but he's on another show, so why are you even bothering us with that? Yeah. And they say, well, we have some inside knowledge. Uh, this was during uh, season six of Sons of Anarchy hadn't come out yet, mm -hmm. but they knew that his character was being killed off. Oh, this wow. was huge, huge like spoiler situation. No one can know. I mean, uh -huh. this is a huge hit show. Yeah. Um, but he's already starting to think about what would I want my next project to be, mm -hmm. and you know, fortunately for us, he wanted to stay in TV because he really felt like that's where the best storytelling was happening. Mm -hmm. And so we said, yeah, give him the script and, yeah. and see if he's even, you know, would consider having a meeting with us. And so the same thing happened, you know, 10 days later, we walk into a room and Mark and I have literally been met earlier saying, okay, so here's how we're going to like, you know, position him. Like, mm -hmm. we got to say these things to convince him to do yeah. the show. And he's the same thing. He's like, I can't believe you guys will let me do this. <laughs> let you do it. Are you kidding me? Wow. And so, again, it was just everything falling into place. Wow. And at that point, you have uh, a script, which, you know, a lot of times you don't have. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times you just have a pitch. Yeah. We have a script. We have a world-class director. And we have a legendary actor. That's wow. what we're going out to the town with. Those are all things working in our favor. Now, and of course, we have all these other things that are working against us. Mm -hmm. The word God is in the title. Yeah. Like, that's just crazy. Um, we're going to, you know, really, you know, break some rules in terms of how we tell this story. Mm -hmm. um, that's crazy. Uh, there's really controversial themes. Like, forget religion. Like, we're pushing a whole bunch of buttons right to life, mm -hmm. um, sexuality, uh, marriage, dynamics uh, between man and woman. Um, 
there's also like some some really interesting race dynamics going on. These are all themes that a lot of people could be scared of. Mm -hmm. And so it's a good thing we came out there with that powerhouse team because, uh, you know, if you had just gone in like, hey, Ben Watkins has this really <laughs> interesting script, not a chance. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. And so. So you took it to the town. Was Amazon part of those meetings, or at what point did Amazon come in? Yeah, Amazon came in. Um, they were they were on the list always. Mm -hmm. um, they so uh, and I think part of it was the fact that there had been everyone could at least reference this time when there were people that are players now that were not players that were sort of introducing themselves to the industry and wanting to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And while there are a lot of people who would just, you know, kind of write them off as upstarts that are never going to be anything, especially when you have all these established networks out there, a lot of them turned out to be groundbreakers. Mm. HBO, Showtime, uh, FX is a great example. You know, they started up and nobody took them seriously and they were still trying to figure out who they were and then they got their breakout show mm. the shield yeah and so and it changed everything it changed how they were perceived and it changed the the terrain of television mm. same thing with hbo so and in amazon starting off and everybody's like wait a minute this is like this online retailer what are they thinking yeah um how serious are they and they're doing this crazy process of throwing things up and letting anybody throw a pilot up you know no one kind of had a real good feel for like what it was and everybody was a little scared that they were trying to change the process mm -hmm. but everybody also knew it's nice to have a wild card in the bunch yeah and so we went out to all the regular places and we got some some good responses from a few of them um, but across the board all a little bit scared yeah. and Amazon was sort of you know we're definitely gonna go to Amazon but if you had said, hey, HBO wants it, Amazon wants it, who would you have gone with? Probably HBO, mm -hmm. just because they had the reputation. Yeah. Um, but if you say, when we walked into the room with Amazon, first of all, we gave them the script. They hadn't read it yet. We just kind of described what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And their eyes lit up like, you know, that's really interesting. Like, we haven't seen a show like that. We haven't, um, you know, we haven't heard of a show like that. And then after they read the script, they immediately got back. And not only were they open to it, they were enthusiastic about it. Wow. And they were enthusiastic in terms of like taking chances, not mm. just, because there's a way you could do it, you could tone down so many of these things and still say you're original. Mm. Um, but this show was really meant to break some rules. Mm. This show was really meant to sort of uh, take people out of their comfort zone a little bit. And if you toned it down, uh, then that that would have been something. It, it would have just been something you've seen before. Mm. And so I, I know when I talked to Bo Willeman of House of Cards, mm -hmm. he he told me about working with Netflix being a much freer experience than the traditional networks in terms of them not giving a lot of restrictive notes. Mm -hmm. um, he, he mentioned that they they did give notes and they were helpful notes, mm -hmm. um, not restrictive. Would, would you say that's been your experience with Amazon? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, every, again, if you just take the game plan of like some of these other places that started as upstart and said, you know, we put the power in the hands of the storyteller and we, we have to put our faith in those guys. And if we do, then we have to let them sort of do their best to bring that vision out. Mm -hmm. So um, we heard this a lot. You know, Morgan Wandel was sort of the, the point um, executive for Amazon. And one of the things he would say a lot is like, you know, we, you know, we respond to passion you know, because we don't feel like you're willy-nilly. So we know if you're passionate about something, you've put in time to figure out why and you have a real vision for it. We want the vision and we want the passion. And then the other side is, okay, so if this is what you want to make, what's the best version of it? This is the show you want to make. Let's do everything we can to make the best version of that show. Uh, and, you know, Roy Price, President of Amazon Studios, you know, when they gave us the green light, I had a, I had a meeting with him and Morgan Wandel and Carolyn Newman, who was another executive heavily involved. And he asked about some of the controversial content. And he, he, he literally said, you know, there's the pilot has gone over incredibly well. Um, but there are some people who have really like called out the controversial content, including the, the religion, including sort of like this gray area of like what's morally right and wrong mm -hmm. and what justice versus revenge looks like. 
and do you have plans to continue that uh, <laughs> if this goes to series? And I got scared, like literally my heart stopped because I was thinking, oh man, how do I answer this? Because uh, I felt like they were going to be asked, like a typical network would have said, tone that down. Mm -hmm. You know, you got a good show, you got a good cast, tone that down. Yeah. No, need, no reason to court controversy. And, but I knew that wasn't the show I, we had made. And I knew it wasn't what we sold. And I knew it wasn't what we sort of committed to making if we ever went to series. So I told them, I said, yeah, we, I mean, that's kind of the show. And then and I'm, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. And then he just smiles and he's like, good, we want that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so, and they, you know, it's a first year show. They've been involved early on, especially like trying to get, you know, as we're getting our bearings, you know, they more notes early on and, and really trying to guide it again, but all in the service of let's make the best possible version of this show. And the, I would say the deciding factor in most of these decisions has been what's the best version of the show? Where's the passion? Where's the vision? If the vision is there, that's the designing, deciding factor. Now, having been on another network that's highly successful, USA, but that has a brand and wants to fit within that brand, there were plenty of times where it didn't matter how passionate you were. If that didn't fit, that didn't go. And mm -hmm. it wasn't a conversation. It was yay or nay, mm -hmm. you know? And, the, you know, they, they're, I, I give USA a lot of credit. I mean, right now they have one of my favorite shows in Mr. Robot, but they definitely had a brand. Mm -hmm. And so there are times where that, you know, has some limitations on you. And what's interesting to me is even when you look at some of the ones that were considered upstarts, they also tend to sort of find their way into their brand territory. And they either have to remind themselves that they really want to push the envelope, and then you'll see a new show come out and you're like, oh, that's, that's the FX that I, that I love. Mm. Or HBO would push the envelope again. Oh, okay. You know, and it, they hit the reset button and they said, we're going to, we're going to stay in that fresh original zone. Mm. Uh, and hopefully Amazon will too. Okay, so you've been very generous with your time, uh, but we do have to start wrapping this up. You've got other things to do, I'm sure. Um, but uh, I do want to get to some Twitter questions that have, that have come. Um, one of them is from Paulette. She says, so many characters have damaging emotional decisions. How are you going to allow them to make amends? Well, um, make amends. I think... <clears throat> Here's what I would say. There are a lot of shows that there's two ways to approach it. You can start with a character that you make, you, you immediately make them likable. You find ways to make them likable for the, for the audience. And then you start to peel back and give them flaws and give them different obstacles. And, the, and, and so, and, and that's a great journey. What I wanted to do in terms of flipping the script was put people into an extreme situation right off the bat and not tell you how they're handling it, show you, mm. and let you kind of sort of decide whether they're good or bad. I, and I, I always was saying, I basically said, I want to put all these characters in a corner and make them fight their way out. Mm. As a, and by in a corner, meaning we don't show their best side right off the bat. And they fight their way out. And if they fight their way out, what they are doing is making you start to root for them showing these different sides of them where you start to say, oh, man, I would have done the same thing. Or I totally understand. I would have never done that, but I totally understand why mm. they're reacting this way. And as soon as you get into that place, you're starting to relate to these characters. Uh, one of the things that's really important for Hand of God is that we play in this land where we're saying two things are true about people all the time. They are good and bad at the same time. And so in Hannah God season one, you know, a perfect example is, you know, Pernell Harris's wife tries to find a way to sort of like medicate him. She doesn't tell him. She starts to dose his food. Mm. And you already know she has this agenda of wanting to hold on to this life that they've built. But you also know she has some love for him. It might, it might be a little um, distorted now, but she has love for him. So the question became, and this came up a lot in the writer's room, it came up with the executives. You could do this show that would make it easier for the audience if you made it really clear her only motivation was love for Purnell. You could do the other side, which is that you make her motivation completely clear. Her only motivation is to maintain that life. So then you either have a really um, sentimental 
character that we can all relate to because she loves her husband even though she's doing she's lying to him or you have this really manipulative woman but what if even if she's not conscious of it both of those motivations are true that's what we want to do with hand of god so i feel like they're all lovable characters because they're all having human reactions and i know we try to avoid some of our more extreme human reactions like we try to pretend that they don't happen or that we don't have that side of us. But we do. And mm -hmm. we see it in flashes all the time. And in this show, those flashes are a little more extended. Like for you and me, like you could be driving back to Santa Clarita and be in traffic and somebody cuts you off. Mm -hmm. And this has happened to me where I got cut off. And for some reason that day, I snapped. And I'm not that guy. I'm usually pretty mellow in the car because I just sort of have to like be zen about it. But one day I was like, what? Mm -hmm. And so, I literally snapped and I, I spent the next five minutes of my life weaving through traffic, doing everything I could just to catch up to this person so I could be side by side and flip them off. <laughs> and it was sort of out of body. Yeah. And I'd love to say, oh, that's not me, but I was the one doing it. Mm. I made that decision. It was emotionally motivated, but I made that decision. And I think all of us go through moments like that in spurts. And it can be triggered by getting cut off in traffic. It could be triggered by loss of a loved one or a breakup or a new job or whatever it might be. But you have these times where emotion just takes over and you see a side of yourself that you've never seen before. And Hand of God has that. Mm. And Hand of God is putting these characters in a, into extreme situations. But if you really take a step back, their reactions are all things that we should be able to relate to. Very, very cool. Um, and Paulette asks, if you're in negotiations with Amazon for season two, he left us with so many juicy cliffhangers. <laughs> well, I'm glad that, um, I mean, first of all, the way people have been responding, the, 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 the audience response to season one of Hand of God has been ridiculously good. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm really glad because we didn't give them, you know, something that was familiar. Mm. Get, you know, a lot of people like, there's no show like this out there. And you really are taking your chances when you do something like that. Because people like familiarity. Mm. Uh, but luckily the audience is loving this and embracing it. And now the way they're responding to all of the storylines that we've sort of set up, you know, for a season two has been really gratifying because that was, you know, a big goal for me. Now, um, but, and, and we've already heard from, from Amazon and, you know, it's undeniable, the audience, is, I mean, they're just how well the show's doing for Amazon. They never talk about their numbers, mm. but we hear, oh, the show's doing really good. And uh, we should talk about season two. So we're getting that inkling that, you know, there's definitely a conversation, but you never know. Mm. We've heard so many stories where, you know, you, you know oh, season two, is a, it's in the bank. And then it doesn't <laughs> happen. Um, but the, the conversations have already started and we'll see. Very cool. And uh, Linda asks, is season two of Hand of God written yet? And I'm guessing the answer is no, but sort of, do you have an idea where it's headed? Yeah, um, yes. So the first, the, to your question, yes, we have an idea where it's headed. Um, this, again, I, and I kind of ran into this as I was sort of writing the pilot and then putting together like what you call a sort of the, 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 what they call a format in, in the business. is sort of like a, a um, series Bible. And one of the things, because I'm dealing with a really, um, well, I would say this premise is a difficult premise to say for your main character or the catalyst for this show is asking this question, is he insane or inspired? And to ask that question, I really had to have an answer for myself, even though I give fodder to both sides of that um, conversation in the show, I have to have an answer for myself. And that meant I had to actually think this thing through all the way through, um, and in my case, five seasons. Wow. Yeah. Five seasons. Five seasons of what the overall arc would be for the mm -hmm. show and for, for Purnell. And then there's some specifics that come with that. And for season two, um, we already have thought about what, where we go from season one to season two, because at each one, we need these little signposts at the end of each season mm -hmm. to turn us to the next one. And um, one really cool um, part of the whole process was uh, that when, uh, I, when I decided that Purnell was going to be uh, motivated by grief and mm -hmm. guilt, because uh, originally I was just going to have this guy that was just going to 
decide that he was a vigilante and he was going to change something, but why? Mm -hmm. And I started trying to think of what would be a cause. And then I realized that there aren't really any external causes out here that uh, audience would all be behind. So I couldn't use global warming. I couldn't use, you know, the economy. I couldn't use, I, so um, I decided to go with grief and I started doing this research into grief. And, and one of the things you come across really quickly are the five stages of grief. Mm. And if you look at the five stages, it's actually a pretty good, you know, framework for a story. Oh, neat. Yeah, it starts with, um, so denial. it starts with denial, then it goes anger, then it goes bargaining, then depression, and then finally acceptance. Wow. So I'm going to use that loosely as a framework for five seasons of uh, Hand of God. Very, very cool. Well, that, that is a great place to end up in. Uh, I, w I want to say congratulations, too. Um, I mean, this is, this is a big deal. This is, I think you're, you're breaking new ground on a new network and... Uh, and Amazon is really behind it, and yeah. um, so good on you. Thank you very much, Gray. I really appreciate your time. And that was my interview with Hand of God creator Ben Watkins. I want to thank this week's sponsors, Red Giant Software at redgiant.com, Screenwriters Rent Room podcast. You can find out more about that at hilldogproductions.com, Script Proofed, Script Proofing Services at scriptproof.com, and Blackmagic Design, makers of DaVinci Resolve 12 edit software, and much more at blackmagicdesign.com. And if you've got kids, especially in the 7 and under age group, I would urge you to visit abc123songs.com for some excellent animated kids' music videos. I want to remind you that you can follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle for the latest updates. And as always, there are tons of resources at tvwriterpodcast.com. You can find all of these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Graham A. Jones. See you next time. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and scriptmag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web.